Well, good morning, Crossroads family. This is really fun to get up and tell you a little bit about my research and share with you a morning in the words, looking at the theme of mission. So um, we've been coming here for a few years. Uh, before that, we spent a better part of a decade in the country of Jordan and uh, also consulted in all kinds of um, humanitarian relief and development and the refugee crisis over there. Uh, my uh, studies lately have been looking at the relationship between mission, what the church is doing in the Middle East, and counterterrorism or de-radicalization. And you might think, what in the world is he talking about? What the church has done in the Middle East and the example that it's been has brought all kinds of people um, to it as a community. And uh, one of the crazy things is we're, we're in the last 10 years looking at uh, a phenomenon of religious conversion in the context of uh, the refugee crisis and Islamic State and the war in Iraq and all of this stuff. 40,000, give or take a few, uh, by the best estimates, have come to faith in the last eight years. And many of those, like some of the stories I'll tell you this morning, come from the most extreme backgrounds, Al-Qaeda and Nusra Front and Islamic State. Part of my research, uh, I interviewed about 52 people who um, either came from those backgrounds or worked with them in relief agencies or in churches. And so I'll weave a few of their stories in as we talk about mission this morning. So what is mission? That's our question this morning. And more than just a value of crossroads, the last few weeks we've been looking at the three values, worship, community, and mission. At the center of that is this vision of the kingdom of God. Mission, um, in, in many regards, is the meta-narrative above the whole story of the Bible. It's the narrative. It's the story of a God on mission. So the mission started with creation, and we see in the Trinity, Rod talked about this last week, this loving community. And one theologian talks about love as a kind of base code that the universe was programmed to. So out of the exuberance of Trinitarian community and love, the perfect God, not needing us, but exploding in this generous love, the universe came to be. There's a wonderful picture uh, 15th century art of the Trinity that um, captures some of this idea of mutual submission and love, and it pictures the Trinity around a table. And that theme continues through Scripture. We'll talk about hospitality a little bit today and what that means. So God on mission. We often get the um, pronouns kind of messed up. We talk about like going on a mission trip or what's your mission, but really mission is God's mission and we're invited into it. So Jesus said, for example, as the father sent me, so I am sending you. He said, my father is working and I am working. He said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And then he gave the church a mission. And we're going to look at that part of the story. So if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read a lot today. So if you've got a Bible, get your thumbs ready, loosen your fingers up. We're going to do a lot of flipping. I'll put a few of the main verses up as we go along. 
But what I want to do is take you on a tour of the theme of mission throughout the scripture. So we're gonna go Old Testament, Psalms, Prophets, New Testament, apocalyptic literature. We're gonna try and touch on it all. But we're gonna start kind of in the middle of the story, if you will, in Acts. So if you wanna stand, let's read from Acts chapter one, starting in verse six. And we'll jump to chapter two, read a bit of that. So Acts chapter one, verse six. So when they had come together, this is after the resurrection, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him, by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. And then chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout people from every nation under heaven and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they're drunk. We're gonna stop there. You can be seated. So as I said, we're starting in the middle of the biblical narrative about mission. Jesus gives this commission to his disciples. And I find it kind of funny. Their first question is, Lord, are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel now? They already asked that question and he kind of answered it earlier in the story. They were still picturing the coming of the kingdom as something physical, something now, an overthrow of Rome. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons but you will be my witnesses. And he gives them a commission. Now there's lots of places this great commission is mentioned in the scripture. Matthew 28 is another one where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. So this commission doesn't come out of nowhere. I wanna trace this theme. Uh, we're gonna go back to the Old Testament. So if you wanna open your Bibles to Genesis 11, this story of uh, this group of Jesus's followers all of a sudden speaking in different languages to all these nations on earth that were gathered in Jerusalem at the time 
should remind us of another story, the Tower of Babel. And in many ways, Jesus' commission to them is an undoing of what happened in the Old Testament at Babel. So in the story of Babylon, we're uh, introduced to the founder of this city in uh, Genesis 10 in the genealogy. And Nimrod, as a warrior, a mighty man, his name can literally mean rebel or hero. And uh, in uh, the ancient times, worship often um, happened at a temple. And in this case, historians think this Tower of Babel was like a ziggurat. So uh, it was a big, like, um, pyramid structure. And at the top was a room for God to descend from the heaven. And he could use the stairs up and down. And there was a temple at the bottom for the people to worship. And you might say, what's so bad about that? Israel had a temple. The clues are here in the story as we read that they wanted to make a name for themselves. They were unified under one language, one culture, under a warrior prince. They wanted to be safe. And they're pursuing good ends. See, Adam and Eve were told in the garden, go flourish, take care of the earth, make it productive. And they're pursuing those ends, but they're pursuing it with means that are much different than God had designed. This unity through uniformity and a flourishing through power. They're afraid of being dispersed, afraid of the enemy, afraid of the other. And God says, this isn't good. And so the development of languages comes out as a product of their idolatry, of this heresy. See, they wanted a mascot God who was for them, their God. And God says, no, that's not the way. We're gonna flip to a few of the uh, Old Testament um, prophets now. Before we do that, I wanna tell you a story of uh, Yusuf. So this guy was a Salafi sheikh in um, the Syrian crisis, involved in the war. And um, I asked him, like, what was it like? What was the environment like? What was your, how did it feel to be in such an environment? And he said to me, the overall message is that God is here to punish you. He's a killer. You're taught to hate the Christians and the Jews and the idolaters. There's so many devout believers in the environment I was in who live out their religion with passion, but in cruelty. And they really believe they're all right. But it's all out of fear. They say, if we don't do this, God's gonna get us. See, Yusuf experienced what it was like to live in Babel, Babylon. And throughout the scripture, we see Babylon being contrasted with the new city, the city on a hill. We're going to get to Revelation in a bit, but before we do, I hope I've piqued your interest in this grand narrative. Let's flip to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. I'm going to read from verse 6. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. We see these kinds of prophecies echoed over and over in the prophets. The idea was God chose Israel. He chose Abram right after the Tower of Babel in uh, chapter 12. We see the call. He's like, no, that's not how I'm going to do it. Abram, this dude from the country, a nobody, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the earth, all the nations. The purpose of Israel was to be a light for the nations. Flip over to Isaiah 60. Starting in verse one. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift you up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because the abundance of the sea shall turn to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. What does that sound like? Christmas, right? Shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaoth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Again, the house, the city on a hill. This is Jerusalem here is a place for the nations to come. And here we have a picture of many of the tribal descendants of Ishmael who are coming and bringing gifts. And we see fulfillment of this at Christmas with the, the wise men from the east. We see also the queen of Sheba during the time of the Davidic kingdom coming and bringing the wealth of Sheba into the house. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of it in Revelation, which we'll get to in a minute. Flip back to Psalm uh, sorry, Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Verse three, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus the Lord... Thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreign, to the foreigners who gather, join themselves to the Lord, minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. There's the holy hill again. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All peoples. Let's go to Jeremiah 7. 
Jeremiah 7. I'm going to read from verse 5. But note in verse 1 where Jeremiah is. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this. Verse 5 If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you of old. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Now, if you're paying attention, those words should sound familiar because Jesus, in one of the only times we know of that he got upset, drove out those spying and selling in the temple, and he quoted from these two passages. I think that should be instructive. That passage is often misused like, like an adjective, like I'm gonna go flip some tables on those dudes, right? Like an excuse for us to lose our temper about whatever it is we're upset about. But I think this is interesting. Jesus, it wasn't a losing of his temper like he lost some kind of self-control. The story in Mark 11 tells us that he with his disciples, this is the last, his last week, brings them into the temple and it says, and he looked all around. I think that's super interesting. He was like, hmm, what's going on? And then they left for the night out to Bethany. And they come back in the morning, and it says he began to drive them out. And he said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The city on a hill had become Babel. We have these two kind of cities contrasted throughout the scripture. In Acts 1, the disciples asked him an interesting question before he commissioned them. They were expecting, as I alluded to before, this restoration of the physical kingdom. Are you going to overthrow Rome now? They were waiting for that. And he was like, it's not for you to know the time or seasons. There's two words in Greek for time. One is chronos, where we get chronology, chronometer. The other is kairos. This is like God time, like epoch. Jesus said his, when he preached the gospel, the first chapter of Mark, that the time is near or at hand. The kingdom is here Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' coming brought in this Kairos time, the era of the new kingdom. And when he preached his famous sermon, after the Beatitudes, he said, you are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. Can you imagine the confusion of people all their lives that pictured this city of God as a physical place in one place in time, being told you you, this community, you poor, battered folks gathered on this hillside in the country, you are that city on a hill. (laughs) 
Let's flip over to Revelation. Rod mentioned Revelation 5 last week. In verse 9, we have this picture. John is writing apocalyptic literature here, these vivid pictures of the narrative of what God is about, what he's doing, his mission, how he's going to bring it all to a close. Revelation 5, verse 9 says, They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Just before that, we have this picture of, uh, of a scroll. It's like a, a courtroom where the God of the universe, him who is seated on the throne, has this scroll in his hand, and it's sealed with these seals. And he's saying, who's going to open this thing? But what is this scroll? We get a picture of this from some of the Old Testament stories. One of the coolest ways I find might just be my personality to study the Bible is trace these kind of themes. So like if you look at every occurrence of the scroll or a, a book throughout the, the biblical record, what, what is it telling us? And if you look at the story of, uh, of this um, scroll in Jeremiah, right before Israel is about to get conquered, they're under siege by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who ironically is the king of which city? Babylon. And they're at the gates. The city's been under siege. Everybody's hungry and thirsty. They know they're about to be conquered. And God tells Jeremiah, I want you to go and buy a field. What? Why would I buy something right now? And he says, buy the field. You're the redeemer. Again, the picture of the kinsman redeemer is there. And God tells him, I want you to write out the deed on this scroll and seal it and put it in a jar and bury it for a long time because land will again be bought and sold in this place. It's this narrative of hope. And Jeremiah as a prophet is doing this as a sign to communicate to the people of God that there is hope. And so he does it and everybody gets carried off to Babylon. And we don't hear much more of what happened with Jeremiah's piece of land, but what we do get is a picture here in chapter five of that hope. Now, what's this scroll? And some scholars debate this, but the scroll and its seals, the number seven is of completion. That's a lot of seals. It's the deed of ownership to the cosmos to planet Earth. And we hear this dramatic story as each of these scrolls is opened about the battle to retake Earth, to reassert the ownership that the sun asserts over not just planet Earth, not just Jerusalem, but the entire cosmos. Now, if that doesn't stir your imagination... There's some coffee right outside over there. We get this picture in the rest of the chapter of kings bringing gifts and the bounty and wisdom of the nations into this new kingdom after Christ reasserts 
is ownership over the entire planet. And a new city, the city of light, the city on a hill coming out of heaven down to earth with this amazing picture that blows your mind with all these gems and minerals and flowing water and leaves for the healing of the nations. It's an amazing picture in Revelation 21. Now, God is about a mission to restore and redeem and save a people for himself, a city on a hill out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And this compelling narrative should motivate us. So what? So what do we do? Where's my part? So what is mission? One scholar simply puts it, the participation of Christians in the liberating mission of Jesus. So mission is not just a task, it's not a trip, it's not just sharing the gospel, it's the whole of life oriented, aligned with this story. Mission is believing in, witnessing to, and living out the gospel that Jesus preached. The life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus meant something. It changed the course of history. And we're invited into this story to be a city on a hill, to be witnesses, to make disciples. In our culture, oftentimes that's reduced down to sharing the verbal gospel that Jesus died for your sins and accept him into your heart. This is a part of it, but it's not the whole. God is about restoring the entire cosmos. And he invites you into that mission I'm going to give a few examples from uh, the Middle Eastern Church of how they're living out this mission amongst this amazing revival that's happened. I want to set up some context for you first. In the Levant, which is like Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, it's been conflict for hundreds of years. In Lebanon, this building uh, was used by the Syrian uh, intelligence secret police to interrogate, torture um, prisoners from among the Lebanese, various sectarian groups from Shia, Druze, Sunni, Christian, um, and the locals consider it haunted now. They won't won't go near it. So it sits abandoned to this day. Um, Syria conquered uh, essentially the uh, military infrastructure of Lebanon for for decades. There was a massive civil war fighting between primarily Christian, Sunni, and Shia groups, but there's 17 or 18 official sects or denominations or whatever you want to call them ethnic and religious groups in uh, the context of the Levant. And it's in that context that in the last seven or eight years, tens of thousands of people have come to faith in Christ. One of the most difficult, hostile, violent contexts in our modern history. So what did the church do? What did mission look like for them? How did they live it out? In my research, There were lots of themes that emerged. Uh, I'm just going to point out three now. So context, as I mentioned, if you move from left to right, those blue tiles are uh, kind of the pathway that um, all of the um, new believers in Christ followed. These were themes in each of their stories, violence, precarity, displacement, 
The supernatural is also one um, very high percentage of uh, people that have come to faith said they saw a dream or a vision of Jesus speaking to them, a miraculous answer to prayer, healing. And the three I wanna talk about here are movement opposite prevailing power, love and family belonging, and surprising kindness. These were amazing stories I heard from people, and I'll tell you one, of a guy in prison um, that was uh, convicted of terrorism and uh, looking at spending his life in prison. He, um, he didn't get into the details. A lot of these guys, when I interviewed them, were very shy about what they had actually done, but you could read it in their eyes. And um, this guy had a very practical need. There was a chaplain in the prison who, um, his kind of reputation was just helping people out. And um, so the uh, jihadi had never met a Christian before, and he decided to give this chaplain a try. So he said, hey, I got a problem. My um, sister, her car, won't, uh, the authorities won't let her register it. Would you help? Because she really needs this car. And so he goes and tries to figure it out. Weaving through the bureaucracy of the Middle East is no small task. And he comes back and he says, hey, the car's registered. Glad we could help. And the guy just breaks down and starts crying. He says, I've never met anybody that's done something like this for me before. And he starts attending the Bible study in the prison. So what was it in this guy's life? He's like the hardened terrorist. And it was a simple act of helping with a practical need that reached him. Surprising act of kindness that touched his life. Another terrorist said, I started to see how they responded to me, that there was something of love. I attacked them both repeatedly. I came to argue just to attack, but they were gentle. Another pastor came to my home and he left me some groceries and he said, this is in the name of Jesus. I love you and I wanna help. This changed me. This guy had uh, fled from Syria from the fighting and um, was so upset about what the church was doing and how it was growing from among people from a Muslim background that he and a couple others plotted to kill that pastor. And they would uh, stake out his home and wait for him. And um, one day, <laughs> the pastor knocked on the door and left him some groceries. <laughs> he had no idea. And that's what turned the tide for this guy. So these small, surprising acts of kindness had an amazing effect. Here's a um, de-radicalization scholar I ran, uh, ran across named Robasa. So in my study, I kind of compared counterterrorism literature, de-radicalization with, um, again, what the church was doing on mission. So this is a secular guy writing, and he also interviewed a bunch of um, former terrorists, and he says, compassion by an outsider, someone who does not belong to the radical organization, has at times led religious radicals to question ideologies that vilify those with different beliefs. So secular scholars are realizing the power of surprising kindness as well. The second thing I wanna point out is love and family belonging. Many of these church communities um, were so starkly different from the surrounding culture because they included people that seemingly were very different. They included members from Hezbollah and Islamic State 
and from among the Druze, and from among the Maronite Christians, and from among the Orthodox Christians and the Evangelicals. And these are groups that have been fighting and at war in the region for years. And others would look and say, what in the world is going on? And as I talked to different religious leaders, they stood out because each sect would take care of their own. For example, if you had a need or a medical thing, you would go, and you were Shia, you would go to the Shia hospital. If you were a Sunni and you uh, needed food or whatever, you would go to the Sunni charity. But the evangelicals, these Christian communities, minorities, small, persecuted, they were taking care of everybody. Their invitations to the table included more than just their own ethnic group. Who's at your table? One of the former um, extremists that came to faith and now serves in her church says this, we have a simple message, God wants us. He came to us, he wants to be the savior of your life. To demonstrate this, we're told to love your enemies and bless those that persecute you. I have shed many tears learning how to apply this. I've lost sleep, wonder how I could, but God gives us strength. So this lady now, along with a visitation team, goes into camps and refugee communities and visits people to see what needs they have, to care for medical issues, to invite kids to come to school. And many of them were her a decade ago. And she's struggling with how to apply this idea of love of enemy. In Acts 2, later on in the story, Peter preaches this amazing sermon and he's like, look guys, they're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of the Joel prophecy. Remember Joel said that your uh, young men and your young women will, will see visions and dreams and the spirit will be poured out on all peoples. It's happening right now. And that day, 3,000 people are added to the number and it gives us this picture of what their community looked like. They shared everything in common. They were sharing tables, sharing food, praying together, studying the scriptures and more and more people were added to their number, it says. This love and belonging is contagious. One theologian says this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. This place primarily does not exist for those of us that are members. I think we have church switched around sometimes. We see the model historically and in the New Testament church and today in the Middle East that the church is reaching out to those who are not members. It's about being witnesses, making disciples. We're also interconnected with the global body of Christ. We see in the record of uh, Paul and Barnabas's missionary journeys that if one church was poor and struggling, that he would rally the other churches to help. And so mission in this family belonging can also look um, like this church partnering with other churches around the world. We can send people to other places in the world. The third characteristic of these churches is movement opposite prevailing power. 
So the power currents, as I've described in their context, were very ethnocentric, tribal. We're about us and our people. We need to protect, build walls, guard. And they moved opposite all of that. Both the former extremists leaving their identities, their groups, and the religious clergy and workers saying, nope, we're not about that anymore. We're, we're gonna share table with whoever wants to come. It was an amazing movement on both sides, mutual transformation into this new kind of community. And I think that's what Jesus was after when he talks about the new city. You are the city. You are the light of the world. And I think there's, a, um, there's an interesting study here between the theme of Babel and this new community, the kingdom that Jesus talked about, both pursuing the same aims, unity, flourishing, but through very different means. I've got a little comparison here for you of the things that the scripture talks about, this picture of Babel or Babylon or the city. Tribalism, sectarianism, ethnocentrism, but in the kingdom, it's about every nation, every tribe, every tongue, making one new community out of Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, black and white, up and down. There's no dichotomy anymore. There's an invitation, an ingathering of this new community with a new identity. Babel characterized by mighty men, warriors, rebels, but the kingdom were called to be witnesses, disciples followers. In Babel, it's a unity through uniformity, sameness. In the kingdom, it's a unity and diversity and plurality, this beauty that comes from the expression of all different cultures and tribes and tongues. In Babel, it's a scarcity, zero sum. If they get, that means I lack. Flourishing is through taking. But in the kingdom, it's about abundance, giving to flourish. You see the early disciples selling their possessions because somebody else had a need. In Babel, fear and hostility are the way of governing. But in the kingdom, it's about love and hospitality. Do you know when the Bible talks about hospitality, it's a compound word in Greek, philo and xenia, brotherly love of the stranger. It's not quite how we use the word in English in our day because... You know, when we invite somebody to our house, that's being hospitable. But when the writers of the New Testament talk to the church about practicing hospitality, this was the idea. Who's out there? Who's different? Who's marginalized? Who's on the edge that we need to bring in? Invite them to your table. And when we share food and drink, what are we doing? It's like this mutual confession. I need substance. I need something outside myself just like you do. I have needs just like you do. And we share this provision from God with those that are distant and far off. This theme goes all the way from the beginning to the end. God's trying to bring in and draw people to himself and he wants you and I to be a part of that. I was talking about mission at a, a church um, a number of years ago, and uh, we were just brainstorming about what kinds of things could we do, and there was a university nearby with a bunch of um, 
exchange students, uh, who some, some of whom brought their families, and you know, what do they do over the holidays? How can we maybe meet some of the needs there? And so we brainstormed about having some meals or inviting people even to our houses. And uh, one of the elders, elders in the church uh, stood up and he said, uh, I can't do that. What if they bring a knife? And it's easiest for us in a setting like this to say, well, that wasn't quite the right answer. <laughs> but that lives right in here in all of us. Babel lives in me. September 11th, we're getting ready to leave for Jordan, thinking we were gonna go save the world. And I'm in Best Buy shopping for a TV. <laughs> so I'm watching on all the screens, the Twin Towers burning, and the thought, I think I even verbalized it when I called a friend of mine. It was like, we just need to nuke them. And I'm ashamed to tell you that story but there's a battle in each of us. Babel is right here. And the kingdom has come, Jesus said, and he wants us to be a part of it. And the kingdom's to be the kind of community that stands in contrast to all of the isms out there. And we've gotta be different people if we're gonna be part of that kingdom. What kind of selves do we need to be here in Grand Rapids to see his kingdom come? It's not so much about what we do. What you do is important. The physical world is important. There's tons of interesting stories in scripture about how physical things move people. And even in my own research, think about Jesus after he rose. He appears to the disciples in the room. What's the first thing he said? Anybody got any fish? The dude was hungry. Food matters. Another story, um, the disciples are fishing back up in Galilee and they see him on the beach and they run to him. What's he doing? He's making them a meal. What we do in this world matters. How we teach, how we sell our products, how we go about our vocation, it matters. And the way in which we do it, the kind of selves that we are characterized by, the qualities, the virtues, that Jesus talked about, the fruit of the spirit, the fruits of righteousness. So I'm asking you a few questions here as we close. Where is your primary citizenship? The scripture says that ours ought to be in heaven, in the new kingdom. Who's at your table? Is it the kind of people that Jesus interacted with? Or is it people that look and think like us? That's a hard thing to practice. But as we've seen in the witness of the Middle Eastern church, this is how his kingdom comes. This is the mission that he's on. This is the picture we have in Revelation of where we're heading. It's a community that looks very different from the way the world operates, that operates by different standards. And lastly, are we gonna live in Babylon or live into the new kingdom? We've got a choice every day to live 
and the new kingdom. Some of you may be thinking, uh, coming in here, that mission is a special vocation, and it is for some. And if you're interested in um, what that might look like for you, this church has lots of resources. We've sent people all over the world to live on mission. Mission also is about what we do as a body, as a corporate group here, and how we pool our resources and time to serve our community around us, whether it's neighbors on a Tuesday morning or investing in the elementary school nearby, or it's giving and and we uh, send funding to churches that need it, like in Lebanon or Jordan. But mission is also about um, the self that you are. And so that's the question before us this morning. Mission is the story, and we're invited to join it. God's on mission to redeem and restore this entire world, and he wants you to be a part of it. What kind of selves do we need to be to love people who are enemies, to love our neighbors, to be witnesses, to make disciples? As the worship team comes up, I just invite you to a quiet moment. We're gonna close in prayer in a minute. God, forgive us for living into the narrative of the culture around us more than the values of your kingdom. We pray you'd help us be witnesses to make disciples, to live into the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that you modeled for us. We also thank you for this grand narrative that you've given us that you are on mission to restore and redeem all things. You're the image of the invisible gods, the maker of heaven and earth, the heir of all things. You want us to join you. Thank you for what's happening in the Middle East with our brothers and sisters there. Pray you bless them, protect them, use them mightily. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. Lord, use us in this place for our own community, for our families, among our neighbors, to bear witness to the wonderful things you've done, to be the kind of community that stands in stark contrast to the world around us but also for the nations, representatives of the nations that are here in our own city, but also as we partner with the global church to see your kingdom come all over the place. Lord, do a work in us, we pray. Amen.